If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Leviticus, page number just comes up, 126. Leviticus 23, and we're beginning a series this morning in some of the great feasts of the Bible. And what we want to try to do is for this series to conclude when we have the all-age service when all the children will be present as we try to explain to them and to ourselves how the Old Testament feasts and the communion, new covenant that Jesus gives dovetails with that. So hopefully we can uh, make the connection. So Leviticus 23 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Verse 10. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb, a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hin of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. Well, we're beginning this um, brief series and if you keep Leviticus 23 open you'll be able to see uh, the, the connection I hope as we make some cross references we're looking at um, the first fruits this morning and next Sunday we'll be looking at the day of atonement and then uh, on our all age service when all the children will be present we're also going to look at the Passover and try to see what Jesus had in mind when he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, Communion, the Eucharist, uh, variously named. So that we have a more integrated um, approach as we think about the emerging generation. One of the, th if you like, one of the traditions of our church is that the children leave. In other churches, children are present. Some come up and receive Communion. We bring communion and serve it to you and that coming up to the front gives an opportunity for children to have a blessing and begin to participate 
there are strengths in both uh, customs. And uh, what we're trying to do is to see how we can encourage children to ask the right questions. You'll remember when the children of Israel were brought into the promised land, this clear instruction was given. It's this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might. These commandments which I give you this day are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. So it's not only in church, by the way. Talk of them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So this covenant isn't... Uh, um, something extra tagged on at the end of the week, but an integral part of the rhythm of life at church and home, in family and relationship. And then the final part of this instruction, and this is implicit, if we as adults live like this, children are going to ask certain questions. So in Deuteronomy 6, where I've been reading from verse 20, in the future, when your sons ask you, what is the meaning of this stipulation and the laws God has commanded you? Tell them, we were slaves in, uh, of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt, Pharaoh and his household. And so on and so forth. In other words, for parents, particularly with younger children, with the constant challenge of secularism, where everything is the same, one book is the same as another, one day is the same as another, and with the challenge of uh, Sunday being but a commercial enterprise, the challenge perhaps is greater now than it has ever been in the history of the church. So looking at these obscure feasts may not be so obscure when we think on a deeper level. But let's look at just three reasons why we should be considering this first of all. God is a God of order. That is one thing that you notice in creation, in his word, in his covenant, and in his redeeming acts. He is a God of order. The second thing that you will notice is this, that when we look at these feasts, they give us our biblical roots. What was Jesus saying? What was he assuming when he was talking to his Jewish disciples at that time? But anticipating the overflow to the Gentile world. We do need to remind ourselves that what Jesus had in mind as he thought about the church of, of Jesus Christ the resurrected people, that it's not a series of funerals, but of feasts. We are to be a celebratory people. Hence the, the, the idea, Eucharistic worship, thanksgiving worship, yet in the horrowing scene of the crucifixion. Two extremes that are brought together in his covenant love. And the third reason why we should look at these feasts is this that it reminds us of our unique calling. This is what you are to be like among the peoples of the world. I am entering into a covenant with you. I have blessed you and I want you to be a blessing. 
That the blessing you receive is, is not a sort of a cul-de-sac, a dead end in itself. But the blessing is meant to be that we are channels. And that's why we were singing that prayer of St. Francis. Make me a channel of your peace. Help me not to be a receiver only, but a channel of your peace. That's implicit in these feasts. Now, there's a lot more that we, we obviously could, could say about that. But as we look at Leviticus 23, coming to that, there are seven great feasts that are observed. Let's just, they'll come up in front of you so that we look at what they were and where the New Testament emphasizes them. Okay? So, first of all, uh, the Passover. The Passover is a reminder that Jesus died for us. It's the first thing that John the Baptist made the connection, didn't he? When he saw Jesus, look the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How? That he was to be the great Passover of his people. Now, in a Jewish mindset, that wasn't difficult. But increasingly, and as the secular influence, we've lost the connection with these biblical uh, roots and reference points. It's like being in a, uh, going on a journey where there are no signposts. And we can be lost easily. So that the Passover is the first. Then the unleavened bread. That it symbolizes the putting away of sin. The leaven which symbolized uh, sinfulness. Not intrinsically, only a, a symbol. But a feeding on Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the first fruits which we're going to look at this morning. It reminds us that Jesus rose from the dead. It's an anticipation of a new creation and a new order. The fourth feast, the Feast of Weeks, uh, represents Pentecost. Uh, the, the, the 50 pente, um, like the Pentateuch, five books. So there were 50 days. Uh, and after the, uh, the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And, and again, you begin to make the New Testament connections. Then the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets. As you have it, as it unfolds in Leviticus 23. God gathering his people. How? With the trumpet call of the gospel. Good news of great joy to all people. Gathering his people. And then this eerie, awesome, awful day of atonement. Transferring the sin of the people onto a scapegoat and going out into into the wilderness as far as the eye could see and symbolic of as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You know, all these things making their connection as we try to do that. And then finally the Feast of Tabernacles. It's good for us to remember that this is not our home. That we live in a world that is fallen, that there are earthquakes and, and cataclysmic events. Why is it that people only ask, where is God, when those things happen? Why don't they ask, where is God, when a beautiful child is born into the world? Or when we're blessed? Why don't people do that? There, there is an antipathy in the heart of man. That's the thing that I would want to ask if I was asked those questions on Radio 4. Why is it we have such a distorted view? It almost reflects the perverse state of the human heart. So the tabernacles is God's blessing given to his pilgrim people that we are on a journey, that we don't belong here, we're passing through. Now, those are very powerful concepts, mighty, and, and, and they're brought into the New Testament. 
So I think you will see that these feasts are not just a group of obscurantists looking at the Bible as you would read history or anything else. Well, what we, our task this morning is to look at the first fruits. Almost as a society, we've lost the concept of, um, of, of harvest, not entirely. And that's the way of life, that you can, you can go tomorrow to, to Waitrose or to Tesco's and get uh, beans and buy flowers that are grown in Kenya and are brought overnight, and we have them as fresh as if we picked them in the garden. Times have changed, and the seasons aren't as clear as they used to be. But God is still the giver of all things. All things. So the first fruits, this is where we're going to confine ourselves now, verses 9 to 14 in uh, Leviticus 23. And essentially, the sermon is almost all application. So it shouldn't be too difficult to listen to. Almost all application. First of all, these first fruits, it refers to a harvest. Let me just use a very simple illustration. The first fruits belong to God, the best of our lives. Give him your best. He is worthy of it. The first fruits. All good things come from him. And that is one tangible expression. Say, Lord, thank you for so much, but I'm giving this back to you. It's rightfully yours, and I love you. This past year has been a good year for plums. Surfeit of plums. Those of you who have got uh, plum trees, you'll know. And I remember coming out uh, of the garden early and giving to Hannah in the kitchen the first Victoria plum. Victoria plums are rightly the top draw plums globally, I think. But just to say, you know, here is this very beautiful... There are many more to come. And our freezer still has them preserving. Though I think we should eat seasonally as well. But, but that's the point, isn't it? You go into the garden, you say, this is the first. There is much more to come. It's going to be a good year. We give thanks. What if it's a bad year? Do you give thanks? Say, Lord, you blessed us last year. Teach me through this so that I might depend upon you in lean times and good times, in plenty and need. That you're not a God who is circumstantial. I love you if, you if you look after me, and I won't if you don't. What sort of a faith is that? So, what are we talking about here? Well, it's the test of love. The feast of first fruits is the test of love. Give God your best. Before the people ate the harvest, or they made bread... You see in verse 12, what were they to do? They were, on the first, on, on the day you wave the sheaf, here was a sort of a wonderful wave offering by the priests. You, you know, we used to sing as the Sankey song, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing. And of course, the hymn writer saw the sheaves as people who put their trust in Jesus Christ. We, often there's a crossing over of these symbols and it's not wrong. So there they are, waving these sheaves. Pointing to God's grace and God's blessing. Thank you, Lord. Waving it demonstrably. It's His by right. Before we make bread. Before we have it. Dedicate ourselves to Him and thank Him. 
and serve him. Now, of course, what did Paul have in mind when he was challenging a different culture? The Roman culture. A powerful Greek culture with all of its learning and its education and its sport and its arenas. Exactly the same. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your reasonable worship. So you see, whereas the sacrifice of the lamb that was to be given, now yours is to be done all the time. A living sacrifice. Pleasing. An aroma of, 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 of grace rising to God in gratitude. It's a very powerful concept, isn't it? It's the test of love. Dedicate ourselves. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And these sheaves were symbolic of God's provision. All good gifts around us are sent from heaven above. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord for all his love. And, and the point of this, which has been the hallmark of, of, of Jewish people in many, in many times, even though legalistically, has been the fact that God has chosen them. There is covenant people. And Paul brings that into the New Testament. He says, you are the Israel of God, the new covenant, a new people. Grafted into the vine of Israel. Turn to the book of um, Proverbs, chapter 3. If this becomes, if you like, a principle of life, a, a life that is marked by love and, and gratitude and thanksgiving. Look in Proverbs, chapter 3. There's a connection here. It, these are the, the blessings of wisdom... Not of being clever. That's the thing that we should ask about the Magi. What's the difference between being clever and being wise? A big difference. A big difference. For to be wise is to acknowledge the, the goodness of God and to trust him. So in Proverbs 3, 5, here it is. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. This verse 3. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, great or little. The amount isn't as important now, this point. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Do you see the connection? Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. You can't outgive God, but you have to do it to prove it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes this up and says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, legitimate though they are, in varying degrees, will be with you. Don't need to go on a guilt trip if you're doing well and you've got promotion and you live in a big house. No, no. You should enjoy. But you don't do that at the exclusion of your accountability with God and with one another. Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. And all these things will be yours as well. So let me ask you then. Are you, in your life, giving Jesus 
the best. Or just whatever's left over at the end of a busy week. And are you so utterly persuaded that the best thing that you can do for your children is to expose them to the word of God and to encourage them and live such lives that they want to embrace the faith that you profess. For to love God deeply is to love your children and your family deeply. Are we cheerful givers? Or are we grudgingly giving what we really don't miss? See, it's the test of love, isn't it? It's the first fruits. But it's also a test of faith. If we want to ask and test the authenticity of our love, then faith is close to that. So what is the first fruits about? How do we see it now, if you like, uh, through the lens of the New Testament? How do we see the first fruits looking back, not as the Israelites were, looking forward? Well, of course, it's to do with the resurrection. And, and again, you see, Paul makes the connection. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, just to see this. We'll, we'll move on much quicker now as we come to the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 15, speaking now about the resurrection, the feast of first fruits. It's page 1156. In the church Bible, 1156. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. Some were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead and so forth. And this is Paul's reply. But Christ, this is verse 20, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There it is. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, sin came into the world through Adam. Through the resurrection of the dead, also through a man, a new man, a new order, the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Look at verse 22. For as in Adam, don't we know it, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in its own turn. Christ, there it is, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power and so on and so forth. Do you see the connection? When Jesus rose from the dead, he became... The first fruits. So to be in Christ is to be in, in a technical sense, the second Adam. In, in, in Adam, in terms of our birth, we are subject to time and age and disease and sickness and ultimately death. Some prematurely, and it's not fair to us. Indeed it isn't. But in Christ, the second Adam, a new order, a new creation. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of, of an eye. This mortal shall put on immortality. It's a very powerful concept. The test of faith. And what's the implication 
from 1 Corinthians 15. Well, here it is. Look at, look at verse 57. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, if this is so, if Jesus is the first fruit, what are you to do? Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know in life and beyond your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And it's unfortunate, you know, that we have chapters and verses because if we read on now about the collection of God's people, the giving of our lives is the giving of ourselves in the totality of that sense. And the mere thousand pounds from the church coffers is not a great deal. But giving to God's people in need. Because in the New Testament, the mother church, Jerusalem, was dependent on the daughter church, Antioch. And here is the challenge. Gentiles giving to Jews. Jews are good with money, aren't they? Good at making it and better at keeping it. But Gentiles... In a, as, as a challenge to the culture, is a very powerful thing. That's the first fruits. Do you see its implication? It's powerful. It's not a bit of religion uh, on, on Sunday, but a recognition of God's faithfulness and love. And lastly, could somebody just pull that blind down a bit more? Just, um, Lastly, if we're thinking about the test of love, the test of faith, and the test of... Thank you. That's good. The test of hope. These three which are woven together as we think about the faith that we've embraced in Jesus Christ. The test of hope. The assurance of heaven. Just make this last connection as we come to the Lord's table. Look in um, uh, Romans chapter 8. All that we're trying to do briefly, and you can appreciate that uh, the substance of this is, is quite significant as we think of our Bible. And that's why I think this series, uh, Essential 100, is really good so that we can, we can fill in the gaps and understand where certain things fit in and how they work. So it's the test of hope, the assurance of heaven, Romans chapter 8, it's page 1134. Verse 22. Future glory. We know the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So, the trauma of giving birth is illustrative now of creation, groaning. And so, earthquakes, tragedies, creation ill at ease with itself. And have the courage, please, to say to people, where is God? Where he always is and where he always will be. And it's time we trusted him. So, Romans 8.22, groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, look at this, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we, 
groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, because we are subject to decay and illness and all the other factors. The first fruits of the Spirit, the assurance of heaven. And what does Paul do here? But he holds in tension two things. He holds in tension in verse 22, the world as it is, groaning. Groaning under the strain of, of, of the fall of man and its, in, and its implication, cosmically, if you like, on creation itself. That's the first. He holds that intention. The world groaning. And then, in verse 23, the world as it will be. Not as it is now. As it will be. And this brings our hope into sharper focus. If you were to read on, and we, we haven't time now, 24 and 25, it keeps making reference to hope. Who hopes for what you already have? But we don't have it yet. The best is actually yet to be. And we need to say that when we are as happy as we ever will be, or as we are sad as we ever will be, the best is still yet to be. And it's not circumstantial. It is a test of our hope. It's a blessed hope. I've often been challenged, you know, some of us will remember the, the writings and indeed the preaching of David Watson, a remarkable evangelist and teacher and preacher, and prematurely diagnosed with cancer and, and to die in his late 40s. And he was asked, how, how, where is God in this? And this is his, his reply is often a challenge to me. He, he, put it, he put it like this. I have learned that instead of being willing to go to heaven and wanting to stay on earth, because of my circumstances, now wanting to go to heaven, but willing to stay on earth. But the point he was making to himself is this, I should be like this, whatever my circumstances. Because this is our living hope. It is a blessed hope. And here are now the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. That if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord, then you have the Holy Spirit and you ought to be groaning much more. Groaning. As in travail, a woman to give birth. And the Holy Spirit that produces fruit. Real fruit. Lasting fruit. The fruit of uh, the, the things that make our lives so meaningful of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and so on. The things that we crave, that's part of the groaning. The Holy Spirit producing fruit and the Holy Spirit producing authentic fellowship. A community of people who really, really love God. And share the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. So the feast of first fruits. God is uniquely worthy of the best. Give him the central place in your heart and life. And make that to be real as we come round the Lord's table.